So uh, I'm going to speak in English, of course. <laughs> and um, today I want to uh, do some philosophy. So I hope you can tolerate a bit of philosophy here. And uh, so what I'd like to do is, um, well, let's say Prabhupada, uh, of course, taught us that we should have philosophy and religion together. And um, that is not exactly the same thing as philosophy and doctrine. I mean, every religion has a doctrine. Every religion has, you could say, a dogma. And as we know, even among, let's say, faithful Gaudiya Vaishnavas, or let's just say among Vaishnavas, Gaudiya Vaishnavas, uh, sometimes people make philosophical mistakes. And sometimes Prabhupada had to correct them, and sometimes they are not corrected, and then they become a schism or, or what we call a, a deviant idea. And so, but when Prabhupada talks about religion and philosophy together, if you read what he meant by that, it actually refers to, or Prabhupada is talking about, an ability to be rational, an ability to use human reason effectively and to come to logical, reasonable conclusions. And so I'm going to use my very mediocre uh, Apple dictionary here. And uh, so to be reasonable, or let's say to be rational, to give you a little definition, means uh, something, is, something is rational if it is based on or in accordance with reason or logic. Uh, so, so what Prabhupada had in mind is we should actually know, we should be, uh, have the ability to do philosophy, to be reasonable. If someone gives us an argument, we don't simply say no, because that's not what it says in the Bhagavad Gita. Of course, among devotees, you can do that. You can say, well, no, Krishna says something else. But if we want to persuade intelligent people that don't accept everything in the Bhagavad Gita, we have to give good reasons. And in the Gita guide, which I uh, did by Krishna's mercy, I, I tried to do that. I tried to just show that Bhagavad Gita is reasonable. So anyway, um, there are many reasons why we should be reasonable so that we understand correctly our own philosophy. We don't hold views that are illogical or contradictory so that we can persuade other intelligent people, so that we can, in a sense, protect sincere people from bad materialistic arguments, or because materialistic arguments usually are categorically bad, and I'll explain that philosophically, what I mean by that. And, and so there are many good reasons why for our own benefit and for the benefit of others, uh, we should try to be reasonable. And so in this class, I'm uh, going to give sort of a, a very brief overview of um, philosophy. Like in order to, let's say, effectively do philosophy in Krishna consciousness or anywhere, uh, there are just certain basic aspects of philosophy that you should be aware of. And so I'm going to go over them. One is epistemology. This is very simple, very basic. Episteme in Greek means knowledge. So, and of course, logos means 
uh, logic to give a, uh, a logical account of something. And so epistemology basically is an attempt to understand in a reasonable way uh, how we know things. Sometimes we have mere opinions. Plato talks about this. He, he talks about his divided line. There, sometimes we, we just have opinions. They may not be correct, or they may only be partially correct. And sometimes we may actually know something. So what's the difference? Under what conditions? Under what conditions are we justified to say that I do not merely believe this, I actually know it? This is not simply my opinion, it is a fact. What has to be true? What conditions have to exist in order for us to reasonably say this is knowledge or to reasonably say what you are saying is not reasonable, it's not a fact, it is merely your opinion or your belief. So the branch of philosophy that uh, tries to deal with that is called epistemology. Aristotle pointed out something very important about epistemology, which is still considered to be important today. And that is that uh, no matter what you say is true, like you can say the sky is blue, or the sun is shining, or my name is Frederico or something. I mean, you can say anything and someone can say to you, prove it. I don't believe what you're saying is true. I have doubts about what you're saying, so prove it. What Aristotle points out is that <laughs> there's a problem here in that you can be pushed into an infinite regress of proofs. And to give my old example, which is, I think everybody's getting tired of, including me. But, um, oh, I always give the simple example. Someone could say that it's a, it is a fact, not my opinion, that water boils at 100 degrees Celsius. And so then uh, someone could say, prove it. You put a pot of water on the stove and then it boils at 100 degrees Celsius. Someone can say, well, that's not pure water. That's not real mercury in the thermometer. And so then you could have, you have to test the water, but then you have to test the water testing chemicals. Or for example, I could say, my name is, uh, I don't know, my legal name is Howard. Somehow my parents thought that would be a good name for me. So my legal name is Howard. So someone could say, I don't believe that's your legal name. So I could say, well, here's my birth certificate. And they could say, well, that's not a real birth certificate. I think that's a forgery. So then I could say, okay, well, I can get another document certifying that this is a legal birth certificate. And then they could say, well, I don't believe that document. Well, okay, we'll go down to, to a government office. And then the person could say, well, I think you just kidnapped the real government workers and put some of your friends in there in the office and told them what to say. And so, as you can see, this gets very silly, it gets ridiculous, but the fact is that you can be pushed into an infinite regress of proofs. So that uh, someone could say, well, you can never know anything and you could fall into radical skepticism, radical skepticism, and you could deny 
the possibility of knowledge. Of course, that would be hypocritical because you would be claiming that you know that we cannot know. And so that would be a problem also. Or you can say, uh, well, maybe we know and maybe we don't know. Of course, that's also contradictory because uh, if I know something, if I actually know something and you say maybe, vielleicht, if you say maybe I know, then um, you're claiming something to be true, which isn't true. So there, there are serious logical problems with radical skepticism. But for now, I'll simply focus on the point that um, how do I escape? How do I escape a, an infinite regress of proofs? So Aristotle gives a little solution. And he says that in order to escape an infinite regress of proofs, you must um, affirm sincerely, not just as a trick, but you have to claim sincerely that there is a fact in the world which is self-evident. Self-evident, that means it proves itself. Interestingly, Aristotle gives this argument and the same argument is given by Lord Chaitanya, which I find interesting. If you look at Lord Chaitanya's uh, debates with Prakashananda and um, Sarvabhoma, Lord Chaitanya actually gives this argument. He says that uh, Veda, in this case, he says Veda, meaning Krishna conscious knowledge, uh, is self-evident. To give an example, let's say uh, the sun is shining. Actually, I'm in California and the sun is shining. So um, now, if someone says to me, prove the sun is shining, I could say, okay, uh, I'll, I'll send you a picture of California or if you are in the same place as me, let's, let's walk outside. Now, if the person says that, okay, we are outside and I don't see the sun shining, now, at that point, let's say, for the purpose of this discussion, the sun is actually shining and everyone, almost everyone sees that. So if someone says, I don't believe it, you, you, know, you, have, you can't prove it to me, there are three logical possibilities. Number one, uh, the person is lying. The person knows the sun is shining but for some reason is saying it's not. That could be for the purpose of a joke or for the purpose of, uh, I don't know, some, you know, some purpose. So number first possibility is the person is lying. The second possibility is the person is crazy. And the third possibility is that the person simply has a uh, defective body and they, cannot physically see the sun. You know, some type of uh, vision problem, so they can't see the sun. But if someone, if the sun is shining and everyone, or you know, almost everyone, sees the sun is shining and someone said, says prove it, no one is going to take that person seriously unless they think, well, this person seriously needs medical care, either psychological or, or, or physical. But no one is going to feel a burden that I have to prove 
that the sun is shining because everyone knows it. It's self-evident. It's self-evident. Now to give another example of something being self-evident, let's say for example that uh, you want to be a material scientist in the sense of being a scientist of the physical world. Uh, now, you can only do real science if there's a real physical world. If there's not a real physical world, then you are not doing real science. I think that's, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? So then the question is, how will you prove that there is a real physical world? Uh, the first person that brought up this interesting possibility is, uh, well, the first person that we know about in this present yuga cycle or whatever, <laughs> the first person was the French philosopher Descartes. And Descartes uh, gave an example. He said, what if, what if you believe right now that you are in Germany or Israel or Coronado, California? You know, honk if you're in Coronado, California. Anyway, so what if, what if you think that you are in a particular place, but in fact, you are a brain in a laboratory? What if you're a brain in a laboratory right now? And, uh, or the modern thing, they say a, a brain in a vat, uh, which would be ein Gehirn in einem uh, Botich. So, or in, in, in einem Labor in German. So, so how can you prove that you're not? How will you prove that right now you're, you are not a, oh, by the way, don't get worried. I don't really believe this. I'm just, this is just a logical example. So I don't want to throw anyone into an existential crisis here. So, but imagine if someone asked you to prove that you are not right now a brain in a laboratory, what will you do? What will you do? Or if, here's another example. Let's say you are sleeping and then you wake up. And when you wake up, as we always do, we make a decision. We make a conscious decision that my waking consciousness is more real, ontologically more real. It exists at a higher level than the world I perceived in my dream. In fact, we conclude that in my dream, uh, I was just experiencing the contents of my mind. I was not seeing, quote unquote, the real world. Now, how can you prove that? How are you going to prove? Because first of all, you no longer have access to your dream. Once you wake up, the dream is gone. You cannot recover it. And so how could you even begin to prove that your waking consciousness really is more ontologically real, it exists in a, in a more, in a higher sense than, than your dream. Now, the point is, we don't try to prove that when we wake up, we really woke up. We actually don't try to prove that. We don't try to prove there's a real, scientists don't try to prove there's a real world outside their brain. Why? Uh, because all of these things are self-evident. They prove themselves to us. 
And if something proves itself, you do not have to bring in an extrinsic and outside proof. And therefore, you cannot be pushed into an infinite regress of proofs. So this is what Aristotle said, and actually Lord Chaitanya said the same thing. Now, the point that I want to make here is that we can prove by this means that actually we live in a bi-dimensional universe. That the universe that we live in actually has two fundamental dimensions. And we can prove this by showing that it's self-evident. That it is self-evident that the universe is bi-dimensional. And these two dimensions, uh, I'm going to use a terminology which came out of the school of Aristotle. And that is uh, physics. And by physics, we mean just all of the sciences that study the physical world. It can be geology, it can be physics, chemistry, uh, biology, not astrology. That's the only ology that you know, they, they don't accept as a science. But anyway, so if we, if we look at all of the um, material sciences, uh, anyway, we find that actually um, there are, that some of the most important facts in the world, some of the most important facts in the world that everyone accepts, not only is true, but as self-evidently true, uh, are not physical facts. So Aristotle had another category called metaphysics. And meta in Greek means after or above, what comes after. And so he divided, Aristotle divided, or it was divided by his students, his teachings into physics and metaphysics. Now, I will give you an example of a, a case, we can say Germany, we can say any country, uh, but we can talk about Germany, where a decision has been made by the German people to base their entire society, to organize German society politically, socially, morally, uh, in every sense, based on a metaphysical fact, even though this meta metaphysical fact contradicts a physical fact. And by physical fact, we can also say an empirical fact. And so we have a case where there's an empirical fact, there is a metaphysical fact, which contradicts it completely, and yet Germany, the German people have decided to base their society on the metaphysical fact and reject the empirical scientific fact. And of course, this example is very simple. It's the fact that German society has chosen democracy as their political system. And as their judicial system, they have chosen the concept of equality. Of course, democracy is based on an assumption of equality because if people are not equal, why would you have democracy? So let's look at equality. Now, first of all, let's look at the, at the concept of equality in terms of 
material science or empirical physical science. All of physical science, all of material science tells us that we are not equal, period. All of science, there is no branch of science. There is no branch of science, not neurology, not physiology, not biology. There is no branch of empirical science that tells us we're equal. In fact, every branch of science tells us we are not equal. And yet, if we are good citizens, we are supposed to believe that we are equal. How could that be true if it goes against science? It's very interesting. Uh, sometimes when uh, these governments justify abortion, they say there is no scientific proof. Uh, oops, what just happened? Someone just, uh, anyway. Someone could say there's no scientific proof that there is a soul inside the womb or that there's a living, but then again, there's no scientific proof for equality. But this just shows that all around the world, the judicial system is remarkably stupid about these things. But there's, so how do we know that we're equal? We are not equal in terms of our athletic ability, in terms of our mathematical ability, artistic ability, in terms of our emotional IQ. Some people are nice and some people are not nice. So in every possible way, and yet we claim this is a, so there are two possibilities. Either this whole idea of equality is simply complete ignorance, it's complete nonsense, which is what science would say actually, or the other possibility is that there is a, an objective metaphysical dimension to the universe. Those are the only two possibilities. Either you have to say, and of course this gets into the, the, the realm of uh, morality and ethics. So for, or, or take another, take another um, thank you, whoever turned that off. So another possibility is, uh, let's say in the realm of aesthetics, beauty. For example, every, I think anyone that has a brain knows that one of the most beautiful pieces of music is Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Just to give one example. Dun, 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 dun. Anyway, I won't punish you by singing it. So the idea here is that, is that actually beautiful? When we hear beautiful music, we know that it's beautiful. We know that it's beautiful. And yet, if the universe is unidimensional and there is only physical object, then there's no such thing as beautiful. There are no beautiful people. There are no beautiful faces. There are no beautiful scenes in nature. There's no beautiful music. There's no beautiful literature. Nothing in the universe is actually beautiful. Because that's what physicalism, that's what philosophical materialism tells us. And yet we know that some things are beautiful. And therefore, beauty 
since it's metaphysical, there's no physical fact that this face is beautiful, this music is beautiful, this scene in nature is beautiful. That cannot be an empirical fact because empiricism can only tell you about the geology, about the maybe the, the molecular structure, you could talk about the quantum physics. Empiricism cannot speak about beauty. All they can say is, for example, they try. They say, for example, okay, if we look at faces that many people consider beautiful, we can study the proportions and are, are there certain mathematical formulas that when a face has certain things that, but all they can tell us is that, let's say we find certain faces beautiful. There are certain faces in the world that almost everybody on earth thinks are beautiful. So there is very, very, very wide agreement on certain things. There are certain scenes in nature that almost everybody in the world would agree they're beautiful and so on. So we have this whole area of aesthetics. So if there is a real thing called beauty, then we live in a bi-dimensional universe. There's also, we've talked about ethics, about equality, but consider, for example, a moral law, a moral law that almost everybody would agree is objectively true. For example, that it is evil, it is morally wrong to kill an innocent person. Killing an innocent person is immoral. I mean, who, practically every sane human being that's not a, either, everyone that's not insane, you know, anyone that's not a complete sociopath would agree with that. But now, if the only thing, if the, if the only objective truth in the universe is empirical, is physical, then you cannot say it is morally wrong to kill an innocent person or to kill millions of innocent persons because there's no such thing as moral and immoral. When you say that something is morally good or bad, you are not talking about anything that actually exists in the world. You are simply talking about your own psychology. You are only telling us about your own feelings, not about any objective moral truth that is outside of your own emotions. Now, here we get to the point of epistemology and, and, and self-evidence. If we think about someone, let's say some horrible act goes into a school and starts killing children. My point is we know that that is evil, bad. We know that that is immoral as clearly and as deeply as we know that there is a real world. In other words, this is called an epistemology foundationalism. And this is basically what Aristotle was talking about. So if you want to build a system of knowledge, or if you want to say, I know that this is true, for example, if there's a real world, and I also, claim to know that in the world, there are certain laws of nature. These laws are consistent. Therefore, you can have science because if, if the laws of nature changed every two minutes, you couldn't have science unless, of course, the changes were regular and mathematically you could calculate them. Anyway, so 
if you say that the universe is unidimensional, there's not a metaphysical dimension, then you cannot logically say, you cannot intelligently say that it is morally wrong to kill innocent people. There is no such thing as morally right or wrong. They don't exist because they're not empirical. They're not physical things. So if it turns out as it does, that a, that a scientist cannot prove there's a real physical world, because if a scientist, for example, let's say I hold up an object, which happens to be reading glasses. So if you would, by the way, if you wanna buy this, write to me and I'll, you can give me a very large donation. I, I'll actually sell these to you. But anyway, so let's say, I'm just kidding, actually. You can get them very cheaply in, in a store near you. So if I hold this up and I say, of course there's a real physical world, because look, but that is circular reasoning. Circular reasoning means that my conclusion, how should I put it, that or, or the, the proof that I give for a conclusion contains its own conclusion. In other words, these, this little case of, for glasses is real only if there's a real material world. If there's not a real material world outside my mind, then this is just another illusion. So I cannot give this evidence of a real material world. I cannot give this as evidence because this depends on the conclusion that I'm trying to argue for. So I can't give my own conclusion as evidence for itself. If I give my own conclusion as evidence for itself, the argument goes around in a circle. And this is called circular reasoning. Therefore, if we can agree as we do agree that there's a real world outside of my mind. And therefore, you know, there, and that's self-evident. And if that constitutes a legitimate way to begin a system of knowledge, we know as much as we know there's a real world outside our mind, we know that some things are wrong. That's wrong to kill innocent people. We know that as deeply as we, in fact, we know it more deeply. Because for example, if you go to Disney World, which I am not suggesting you do, but, but if you happen to go to Disney World, then they have, or, or anywhere, I mean, there's certain technology now which goes beyond the ability of your senses. In other words, virtual reality. There are virtual reality environments that science can create that you cannot detect, you cannot I'll give you an example, computer graphics in, 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 in movie making. Let's say, for example, they're making a movie and they actually take a car, an automobile, and they push it off a cliff and the car falls and crashes down on the rocks below. Or let's say they do that digitally. You cannot tell the difference. If, 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 if I showed you two movies one movie it's digital graphics the other movie they actually use real objects you can't tell the difference or sometimes people have hallucinations or they have dreams and you don't know it's a dream until you wake up or however so even saying that we know there's a real world sometimes we make mistakes about this however 
we don't make moral mistakes. This is basically what Kant said, Immanuel Kant, he was a German philosopher who was agnostic and in his attempt to defend metaphys metaphysics basically destroyed it. I mean, at least for other agnostic philosophers. Kant's the kind of philosopher you could say with a friend like that, you do not need enemies. Anyway, but we won't talk about Immanuel Kant. But Kant was saying that we have a basic understanding of moral principles at the deepest level of cognition. As much as we know anything is true, we know that certain things are right and wrong. Such as, for example, if, if you're walking down the street and you see some person just start killing innocent people, you know that it's wrong as deeply as you know anything. As deeply, if not more deeply, then you know there's a real world outside your mind. And so therefore, if a self-evident assumption is a legitimate, a valid epistemological basis for a science, why isn't that same structure a self-evident fact about the world, such as that it's bi-dimensional? There are metaphysical facts in the world, either moral, aesthetic, or you could talk about the laws of nature. We'll talk about that. Or mathematics. So we know that there are spiritual things as deeply as we know there are material things. And we're using the same in terms of Western philosophy or even Vedic philosophy, we're using the same epistemological structure. And therefore, we are equally justified in a philosophical sense. So um, that's one point I wanted to make. So now, if you understand that philosophically, logically, we do live in a bi-dimensional universe, which then the next question is, how could that be true? How could it be true? What does that mean? If we live in a bi-dimensional universe, what other facts must be true? For example, the simplest explanation of how we could live in a bi-dimensional universe is that there are two, not one, but two basic kinds of things in the universe. If everything in the universe was physical, the universe could not be bi-dimensional. If the universe is bi-dimensional, which we can prove in the same way we prove there's a real world, uh, that means there must be two fundamental entities in the universe. And that's exactly what Krishna teaches in the Bhagavad Gita. There is matter, prakriti, and there is atma, there are souls. So um, anyway, this is just a, so getting to ethics, how do we show that there is objective morality? It's interesting, people, uh, people say the most incredibly foolish things all the time. And they, some of them even imagine they're intellectuals. It's, 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 it's unglaublich. I mean, it's, it's really unbelievable. I'll give you an example of something almost unglaublich verrückt, you know, just unbelievably crazy that people who think they're intellectuals actually say. They say, for example, that you should not impose your values on other people. Has anyone not heard that sometime? You can't impose your values on other people. 
well, or society cannot impose its values. But if that's true, then there cannot be a law against murder. Because to say that murder is bad is a value judgment. To say that rape is bad is a value judgment. I think they're obviously correct value judgments, but nonetheless, they are value judgments. Or to say, for example, that, I mean, if you put a stop sign in the street, let's say you live in a little town and you really enjoy living in that town because there are no traffic lights and you are free just to go wherever you want. But let's say the, the town grows and now there's more traffic and so you need a traffic light. That's a value judgment. Putting up a stop sign is the imposition of a value judgment. It's the dichotomy between security and freedom. If you put up a stop sign in your village, there's more security, but there's less freedom. If you don't put the stop sign, there's more freedom, but less security. Freedom and security are values. And so when you put up a stop sign, it's a value judgment. There are some barbarian societies. In fact, there are animal societies. If you study animal behavior, non-human animal behavior, you will see that rape is completely normal. That's what people do. Um, well, among some species of life, females rape males. Among some species, males rape females. And you could say among some species, sex is consensual. You know, both people agree, but I don't know if that's true in most species. In many, 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 many species of life, whoever is more powerful forces another person to submit to a sexual act. So someone could say rape is natural. Someone could give that argument. If someone says, we're animals, you know, I'm just an animal. Okay, you probably are. So, uh, especially you. But if you're an animal, then why should society impose some value such as that you cannot rape someone? That's a value judgment. You're imposing a value judgment. So if we don't have... So, so not imposing value judgments simply means, but it's actually logically impossible not to impose a value judgment. For example, let's say someone goes to your house and steals some money from your house. Why? Because they have a weird value system in which it's okay to steal. So they are imposing their values on you. So you could say, well, no, there should be a law against stealing and the police should be careful to make sure that I'm safe. But then you're imposing another value judgment. Or let's say you are an anarchist. Let's say you, you, you believe in anarchy from the Greek, arche. Arche in Greek means a governing principle. So anarche means no governing principle. But as we know, since human beings have many desires, lust, greed, you know, human beings are kind of, anyway, it's a weird species. So even if you declare anarchy, we're not going to impose any values, there'll be no government, then 
individuals will impose their values. Individuals will steal from other people. They will rape other people. They will kill other people. They will even discover the remarkable fact that if we form a group, a gang, we actually are more powerful. We can rape more people. Like if all of us individually steal and murder and rape, uh, that will not be as efficient if we form a society for killing, raping, and murdering. So if we form a little group, we can actually be more efficient. In other words, there is no such thing. It is logically impossible given human nature, given the reality of human psychology, it is logically impossible that there not be an imposition of values. Logically impossible means it, it's, like, it's like there can't be a square circle. There's no such thing as a square circle. If I say, for example, I went to Germany and I was walking in a forest and I saw a unicorn. And someone says, uh, no, I, are you joking? Are you crazy? No, we, there, there are no unicorns in Germany. And I say, yes, it was in that forest. So now we can all go and investigate. We can make an empirical investigation and if we search everywhere, we can say that, in fact, there is no unicorn in this forest. But if I say that um, I saw a square circle in a forest, you don't have to go look for it because that's logically impossible. If you know what the word square means and what the word circle means, that's all you need to know. You can look in the dictionary and understand that there is no square circle in that forest. So it's a logical fact, it's not an empirical fact. Now, if I say that you cannot have a human community that does not impose values, or there cannot be such a thing as a group of human beings where someone is not imposing their values on other people, you could say, okay, we have to study that empirically, all right. You can study it empirically. However, the empirical studies have already been done. We know a thousand times more than we need to know about human behavior and psychology to know that it is absolutely impossible to have a, a group of people where no one imposes their values. Even if you say, okay, we're a liberal community, no one should impose their values, but you just impose your values because it is a value not to impose values. So even when you say don't impose your values, you just did it. You just did what you said not to do. It's like never say never. So the amount of philosophical nonsense that goes on among people who believe they're intellectual is truly magnificent. So if in any case, uh, there are other things I'll just touch on very briefly, like, for example, another thing which is metaphysical is a law of nature. Now, take Newton, for example, Sir Isaac Newton, Bakta Isaac. Now, Newton discovered the law of gravity, but then Newton all, he, and, and what Newton said about this in another book he wrote is that why do material things behave in this way? Why is it a fact? that for, if you have any material object, a planet or a bottle of milk, why is it that every material object exerts gravity? 
obviously a bottle of milk has much less gravity than a planet. So that if you throw a ball in the air, it doesn't immediately go to the bottle of milk. It just goes down to the earth because the earth's gravity is much stronger. Still, there is gravity. So, so Newton himself said, why, why, why is that true? Why do, why is there such a law of nature? And he said, there's no scientific reason for it. You can describe the law of nature, but you cannot say why it exists because those are different questions. And Newton said, there is a law of gravity because God made it that way. That was Newton's explanation. So there is a, uh, there are two kinds of laws. There are nomological laws and there are what are called axiological laws. In other words, you can say there is a law of gravity. You can explain how, or if you want to use Einstein's space-time version of it, you can explain why, for example, the moon goes around, or how the moon goes around the earth. Why it goes around, you can't explain. Because if you say why, in, in a teleological sense, you can't answer the question materially. Um, I'll explain what I mean by teleological. In Greek, by the way, thank you for tolerating all this philosophy. It's, um, I'm amazed that you can actually deal with all, I mean, no one is screaming or turning off their computer. Anyway, so in Greek, uh, the word telos in Greek means a purpose. And this is like axiology. So purpose, axiology means uh, philosophy of values and teleology, teleology means the philosophy of purposes. These are obviously related because if you have a purpose, let's say you decide that today I want to eat more protein, right? This is something a devotee might tell themselves. Today I need to eat more protein. Now you just gave yourself a purpose. You just created a purpose for yourself. Why did you do that? because you have a value. Namely, you value, let's say, being healthy or being strong, and you've realized that you have a protein deficiency. So because you value health, Gesundheit, because you value health, therefore that value generates a purpose. Namely, doing things that will make you healthy, doing things that will allow you to achieve what you value, or you may place a negative value on things. You may place a negative value on sickness, Krankheit in German. I think it's practicing my German, sorry. Anyway, Krankheit, so you may say that I place a negative value on sickness. Therefore, I will do certain things. I have now a purpose in life, which is to avoid certain actions that will make me sick. So, um, again, now teleology means that um, there are, in this case, there are objective purposes. For example, let's say you ask the question, why was I born? Why was I born? Uh, if there's an objective answer, that's teleology. You actually have an objective purpose. So even if you don't understand that purpose, it's still a purpose. Let's say, for example, there's a mother and father and they have a child. Actually, that's obviously, if it's a mother and father, they must have a child, otherwise it wouldn't be a mother and father. So anyway, sorry about that. So let's say a mother and father, they obviously want their child to be healthy. 
and they think this is objective purpose. And so the child, especially an adolescent child who has not developed their, the frontal lobe of their brain and therefore is you know, highly irrational. So let's say a child is not always rational. And, and so a child doesn't understand the value of being healthy. And therefore the child doesn't behave in healthy ways. That could involve driving a car in a completely insane way. It could involve, you know, smoking, which is, you know, among the more stupid things that people can do. So let's say smoking or driving a car dangerously or whatever. So people who believe that being healthy is an objective value will say, even if this person does not understand the value of being healthy, it still is an objective value. And it's objective because when the person gets sick or is smashed in a car accident, they will be very sorry they didn't act in a healthy way and they will wish they did. And in the future, if they recover, they will change their behavior. So this is called teleology. And um, one teleology, of course, is also metaphysical. So what we are saying, because I, I want to kind of get to the Krishna conscious point, I mean, there's a lot of philosophy, but in Krishna consciousness, we can actually demonstrate logically, philosophically, that Krishna consciousness is reasonable. It's reasonable. Our principles are reasonable. Our four regular principles, probably the most universally popular part of our movement for non-devotees. But anyway, I'm joking. So, but we can, I will just, just to, as far as the principles we follow in Krishna consciousness, I will bring up a very famous question, one of the most famous questions in Western philosophy. It was a question asked by uh, Socrates, good old Socrates. It's a question he asked a kind of a, a very foolish person named Euthyphro. This is a person who thought he knew everything about morality, but was actually a fool. Typical Socratic dialogue. So Euthyphro, I mean Socrates, Socrates said to Euthyphro, are certain actions, are certain actions morally good because the gods love those actions or do the gods love those actions because they are morally good? In other words, if we hear in Krishna consciousness, you should do this and you should not do that. Is that simply because there is someone in the universe who's much more powerful than we are, namely God or even demigods, and they have the power to punish and reward us. And therefore, if we understand our rational self-interest, if we want to avoid pain, either emotional or physical or whatever, if we want to avoid pain and we want to pursue pleasure, then rationally we should do what these authorities tell us because they have the power to punish us or reward us if we don't follow or follow what they say. So that's the question. Do we have certain rules in Krishna consciousness? Are we are either rules, you could say moral rules, like the four principles, or we should chant Hare Krishna, or we should think that God is blue. In other words, is, our, is God simply imposing upon us his own desires, which 
are not objectively good. They just, it's just the law of the jungle. The law of the jungle that, you know, whoever is most powerful makes the rules. So ultimately, is religion just a very sort of sophisticated form of animal behavior where animals try to avoid pain and pursue pleasure? Or is it the fact that Krishna is telling us to do this and don't do that because it is objectively in our own rational self-interest? If you look at the philosophical debates between Buddhism and Vaishnavism, or more broadly, Buddhism and other forms of what is now called Hinduism. Okay. Uh, Nanda Nitai, I think you need to put your microphone. Oh, sorry. Sorry. That's okay. It happens in the best of sampradayas. So, in order for, so, so this is really the question. Oh, so the Buddhists, the Buddhists gave an argument against Vaishnavism and other so-called Hindu groups that Buddhist philosophy is superior because in Buddhism, certain activities are good or bad morally because of their objective consequences, according just to the laws of nature. Whereas in Vaishnavism or other devotional groups, uh, karma is decided just by the whims, by the caprice, or just by the, the, the selfish desires of some deity. And actually that's not true, because if you look at Bhagavad Gita, what you find is, and this is like really good news for everyone that you know wants doesn't want to have a God who has uh, emotional problems. In the Bhagavad Gita, what we find is that Krishna does not punish people because they reject him. For example, in the Bhagavad Gita, He's not a jealous God. If you look at the results of the mode of goodness, the material mode of goodness, sattva guna, you find that people who do not worship Krishna, they're not Vaishnavas, they do not worship Krishna, but they act virtuously. They are elevated in their next life. Krishna says, urdhvangachanti sattvasta. Those who stand in goodness are elevated. Krishna says, Atra prakashakam. That, that goodness is enlightening. It's prakashakam. Krishna says that wisdom comes from goodness. He says that sattvatsangjayate sukam, that from goodness comes happiness. So according to Bhagavad Gita, you can be a wise, happy person who's going to be elevated without God. Because Krishna also says that yajante sattvika devan, yajante sattvika devan, that those in goodness worship the demigods or the devas. They don't worship me, they worship the devas. So people that don't worship Krishna can be wise, 
happy, and they can be elevated. This is not a jealous God. This is not a jealous God. So anyway, I don't want to go on too long. There may be questions, but uh, if you study everything that Krishna asks us to do or not to do, you will find it's actually rationally in our interest. It's for our own self-interest. And that is why in my own approach to Krishna consciousness, uh, like my, uh, you know, the great deviation called Krishna West, I'm joking. I actually don't think it's a deviation. But the reason I did Krishna West is because I don't want to do things that are irrational. Either irrational in the sense that they're not objectively beneficial for me, or if I do something else, it won't objectively harm me. Or if I have a particular purpose in my life, which is what which is that I would I would personally like very much to help this planet by spreading this knowledge. And if I think that certain ways of presenting Krishna consciousness are irrational in the sense they contradict my purpose, they're working against my purpose, and there is no significant reason to keep those things, then I don't keep them. And so I can honestly say in my life that I have a good reason for everything I'm doing. I'm not really doing anything for which I don't have a good reason. And so that's my own experience that I can be, you know, I can practice Krishna consciousness and have a completely rational life. And, uh, and I would say I cannot have a completely rational life and not practice Krishna consciousness. That it would be in many profound ways, irrational of me not to practice Krishna consciousness. And so to me, it's not just, it's just about being intelligent. I, I feel like I'm just, that's what I'm doing to the best of my ability. Anyway, uh, these, so I mean, these are some of the points I wanted to make. I mean, obviously, you know me, I could talk all day, but uh, many of you probably would uh, find it unbearable. So. At this point, if you have any questions, I think there are, I'll look in the chat. I'm gonna hit the chat box and see if there are some questions here. Uh, okay. Why those, from Braja, why those values seem more acceptable for society today than the values of a personal God? Oh, that's an easy one. Uh, because uh, people are trapped in a historical dialectic. I'm re referring here, of course, to the great German uh, philosopher Hegel. Uh, Hegel, and uh, who uh, was the first one, perhaps, that took all of the, the resources of academic philosophy during his time and focused them on human history. And, and so if we, you know, what can philosophy tell us about history? I mean, ultimately he wanted a science of history because in those days after Newton in Europe, everyone wanted a science of everything. They wanted a, a political science, a social science. And so Hegel said, why not a science of everything? And, and so in a sense, academically you could say, or intellectually, the biggest category is history because it includes everything. 
It includes intellectual history, which is philosophy. And so Hegel said, why not a science of history? So anyway, he, as we say in America, gave it his best shot. And one of his real contributions was his, I would say discovery or understand, because I think it's, it's true that history tends to move dialectically. Because if we study history, we see that things change. I mean, power shifts. Power goes from one place to another place. People are born and die. And ideas change. And, you know, things change over time. Things change over time. So, his, so Hegel was saying, why? Like, what is moving these changes? Why does, why does history change over time? And uh, he is, his answer was that things change over time uh, by a dialectical process. And I'll explain this. Basically, the easiest way to, uh, I mean, you, many of you already know this, the easiest way to understand this historical dialectic is that it is simply a, uh, a historical pendulum effect. Galileo, apparently, uh, good old Galileo. Actually, the real reason Galileo was put on trial was because he was unbelievably obnoxious. And if he just would have been a gentleman, he could have, because Copernicus, before Galileo, Copernicus already said that all the, you know, the earth goes around the sun. So it's not that Galileo was put on trial because he said the earth goes around the sun. Copernicus already said that. He was put on trial because he was incredibly obnoxious and kept offending the Pope was trying to be his friend, but that's another story. The, um, you know, scientists like this myth. They like this myth that, um, that uh, religion is somehow the enemy of objective knowledge and science, so they don't tell the real history. But anyway, Galileo did talk about the pendulum. So a pendulum is very simple. It's the idea that a, a, an object can be at a point of equilibrium, at a point of rest, which is stable. It just stays there. But if you take a pendulum and pull it to one side, uh, as soon as you release it, it will swing all the way to the other side because it is not, it's in tension. It, it, it's a state of tension. It's just like, for example, uh, well, anyway. So historically, let's say, for example, you have a case where there's a society like America, where, and, and, and probably most other countries today, where a very small number of people have a very large percentage of the national wealth. So you have a lot of people that don't have much money and you have a few people that have more money than they need, more money than they can ever spend. And so this creates a state, it's like a pendulum where if you pull the economy to an unnatural extreme because the people that don't have much money will be very unhappy about that fact. They will not like the fact that a few people are wasting money, they're living like pigs, and they're just, and they have more money than they need. And so this creates social tension. And so what will happen is, I mean, to give a very good example of this, the French Revolution, where you had, you know, almost all of the money in the hands of a few people, the nobles, you had a, a very large number of people who were suffering, who were poor and uh, you had these you know sort of this this uh, dynamic duo of totalitarianism which was the church and the monarchy 
And so they controlled power. They not only controlled temporal power, they even had absolute control over your future life. And so you get a revolution. What happens is this extreme, as Marx said, Karl Marx, it creates, and as, as, as Newton said, it's one, of the, it's one of Newton's laws of motion, that every action produces an equal and opposite reaction. And so when you pull the pendulum to this side, it creates an equal and opposite reaction. It goes all the way to the other side. And so Hegel said that any historical situation, which you can call a status quo, it, um, it's not exactly the middle. It's not equilibrium. It's not a perfect society. And therefore, inevitably, some people are not happy. And that unhappiness can be transformed into political action or even uh, violence or, or whatever. And so you get this, and so you, you get history in a certain status quo. It creates its own opposite, according to Newton, you know, an equal and opposite reaction. You get this opposition between what is and what other people want it to be. There's conflict, maybe there's war, there's whatever. And then you get a new reality, which becomes the new thesis. So why are people, so in answer to the question, uh, let me go back to that question from Raja. Um, why don't they want a personal God? That's obvious because of all this terrible religion that they've had, which was based on a personal God. I mean, if you look at, you know, I mean, everyone knows the list. We can go through the list together, the Crusades, the Inquisitions, you know, all these crazy things. And so personal, so-called personal religion was so traumatic and so abusive and barbaric that people went to the opposite extreme. Now, the message that I'm trying to communicate to intelligent people, non-devotees in the West, is that by definition, the antithesis is also not a point of equilibrium. If you have an abusive thesis, which creates its own antithesis, that antithesis by definition will be equally bad. It's just like after World War I in Germany, you had this uh, Treaty of Versailles, which was abusive and basically you know, destroyed Germany. And then that thesis of, of completely humiliating and degrading Germany produced an antithesis, which was also, as we know, pretty bad. We know what happened. So therefore, uh, we have to move forward to synthesis. Society has to be mature enough not to get stuck in this mindless antithesis. Because one point that I make is, if you reject the idea of God, I mean, what you think God is, if you reject the idea of a personal God, you are basically rejecting human reason. Because human reason, your ability to reason as a human being is based on your ability to perceive causality. If I do this, it causes that. If I do that, it causes this. If I take two apples and then I add two more apples, that causes four apples to exist. And so whether it's mathematics, whether it's any science, human reason is based on your ability to understand causality. And it is a principle of causality. 
Satkaryavat, that a cause must be in some way present in the effect. This is actually a principle of, of ancient Vedic logic. For example, let's say you're on the Autobahn or you're just on some street and there's an accident. There's an accident. One car hits another car. So the police come and then the insurance people come and they take pictures. They study the skid marks. What are the marks on, on, the, on the pavement? And what's the position of the car? How did the cars, what was the point of impact? And they come to a rational conclusion of whose fault it was, who caused the accident. The police want to know, the insurance companies want to know. But this whole process of investigation is based on a logical assumption that the cause must be somehow present in the effect. Let's take, for example, Historische Wissenschaft. Let's say you're studying history. And so you want to know why did America get involved in Vietnam? Why did they get involved in this catastrophe of the war in Vietnam? And so the way you analyze it is you have to start with the effect. And you're in time, you have a cause and then it, it goes to an effect, but, but analytically you have to go backwards. You start with the effect and you go back to the cause. This is true in medical science. No one tries to find a cure for a disease that doesn't exist. We only try to find medicine or cures for diseases that do exist, but a disease is an effect. So you start with the effect and then you try to go back to the cause. So in that same way, we the biggest effect that any of us know about is called the universe. The universe is the supreme effect that we know about. And so if you want to know the cause of the universe, you have to study it and then go backwards. And what you find in the effect is that the most developed existence in the universe is consciousness and there are higher states of consciousness and so therefore how could an unconscious how could there be an unconscious cause of a conscious effect by the way this gets into the point that um, the laws of nature are also metaphysical because you could say that the laws of nature are simply descriptive in other words the laws of nature just describe the way material things behave but that's actually not possible. The laws of nature are also prescriptive. They're also causal because according to the Big Bang Theory, before the universe, you have this quantum state in which you don't have space and time and you don't have laws of nature, but there must be some laws because the laws produce the universe. In other words, the, the physical laws of nature are created by other laws that by definition are not physical and do not exist in time and space. Otherwise they couldn't create time and space. Therefore, even, you know, anyway, Big Bang Theory actually points to a metaphysical reality. So, but I want to go on to the other questions, otherwise we'll be here all day. But yes, why don't people want to talk about God? 
because they're acting emotionally and not rationally. It is the whole way. So, so one of the ways you reason is by causality. Another major way that reason works is by generalization. For example, let's say you see a dog and then you see another dog, which if you're in America or Germany is very likely, you will actually see many dogs if you walk down the street. So let's say you, let's say you see three or four dogs and, and let's say you do not have the power to generalize. And therefore you have no idea that let's say one dog is big, one dog is small, one dog is this color, that color, different species or races of dogs. You have no idea that they're all dogs. You have no power to generalize. Therefore, you're never gonna have a science of zoology. How could you have biology? If you see here's a cell and here's another cell, but you lack the power to generalize and therefore you don't know that there's such a thing as a cell. You only know there's this thing here and that thing there and you have no power to generalize. So without generalizing, it's impossible to actually be rational. There's no, it's, it, it's logically impossible to reason. And so if you are trying to understand reality, if you're trying to understand the universe, what you're doing is you're studying two things. You're studying causalities and causality would tell you that who, how, the universe must come from something that's conscious. And in terms of generalization, you would be searching for larger and larger categories so you can explain more and more data with fewer and fewer categories. And so it's this combination of categorization and causality that ultimately makes you intelligent, not stupid. And so therefore, if by God, if we say, what does God mean philosophically? It's very simple. It just means the biggest category. It means the biggest category, a category which includes everything that is physical and metaphysical. So now if you say, I am not interested in looking for the biggest category, you can call it the absolute truth. You can call it God. You can call it whatever you want. But the moment you say, I am not interested in finding the biggest category, at that point, you no longer want to be a rational human being. You have given up, you have renounced the whole human project of being rational and not being foolish and fanatical and crazy. And so you cannot be a rational human being and not try to understand if there is a God and what God would be. Now, you may not discover it, you may be unfortunate, you know, we would say, sorry, you got the wrong samskaras or something. So someone may not actually discover what God is, but the moment you say, I don't, I'm not looking for an absolute truth, at that point, you have renounced human reason. And so I point this out in my, when I give talks and I find when I speak to universities and, you know, apparently intelligent people, everyone kind of agrees. So, and that's why if we want to present Krishna consciousness to intelligent people, we have to not only know our doctrine, which, you know, like you can pass a Bhakti Shastri test, but we have to know philosophy if we want to present Krishna consciousness to intelligent people. So here's another question. When I give arguments to my husband, uh-oh, I don't know if I want to get into this. So when do I give arguments to my husband, about some current issue and I say that is just logic to emphasize my point. He then replies, 
Lord Chaitanya said there's no such thing as logic. Really? Oh my God, no, Lord Chaitanya. Anyway, I don't want to uh, get involved in a marriage dispute, so I'm just making a general philosophical point that that is exactly the opposite of the truth. Lord Chaitanya, what Lord Chaitanya rejected is that logic by itself can take you to the truth. But if you are trying to be logical about basic information given by Krishna, then you have to do that. Otherwise, Prabhupada said you're either a fanatic or you're a sentimentalist. So if you want to be a fanatic or sentimentalist, raise your hand. Well, no one's raising their hand. Okay. So to say that Lord Chaitanya rejected logic, no. It's like, for example, let's say I, let's to give a very unlikely example. Let's say I really, well, actually I'll give a real example from the real world. I really like fried potatoes. You know, like French fries, they call it America French fries. In England, they call it uh, chips or something like, yeah, chips. I mean, if I, if my body could never get sick, I would probably have French fries for breakfast, lunch, and dinner with ketchup. Anyway, so, but I don't do that with some ice cream also. I don't add to the French fries some ice cream. Now, the reason I don't actually eat that <coughs> is because it's not logical. So, so what I mean to say is, you know, having a little fried potatoes is nice, but you can't just eat fried potatoes. And that's Lord Chaitanya's point. Logic is good. Logic is necessary. Lord Chaitanya used logic all the time. When he told Sarvabhoma and, uh, and uh, Prakashananda about, you know, the self-evidence of the Vedas, he was using sophisticated philosophy. But just like you cannot eat fried potatoes and nothing else, you can't just use logic by itself. And, and what Lord Chaitanya is actually referring to is the statement in the Mahabharata that Tarko Pratishta, logic is not the foundation. Now remember, I talked to you about foundationalism. In order to get out of an infinite regress of proofs, you have to have a foundation. And the foundation is a self-evident fact, such as that when you read Bhagavad Gita, you have a powerful experience which you can only reasonably explain by saying it's true. It's just like when you, you're dreaming and you wake up, you can't prove that what you experience is more real than when you were dreaming, but it's self-evidently true. And so when you read Bhagavad Gita, it is self-evidently true because you experience the world and you chant Hare Krishna in a way which is simply more real than when you don't chant, and therefore it's self-evidently true. So once you have a foundation, once you have a self-evident foundation, something which is true, which is important, which you cannot deny because it proves itself to you, then you use logic to find out what are the logical consequences. For example, if I chant Hare Krishna, if I uh, eat prasadam, and then I keep eating prasadam, and then finally someone comes and drags me away. But anyway, let's say I chant Hare Krishna, and then I eat prasadam, and then I read Bhagavad Gita. And this is, this is by the way, the real story of my life. I, it was 1969 in Los Angeles when I started going to the Hare Krishna temple. And then I had these powerful experiences that were simply more real than my experience of the world without Krishna. 
I understood this is categorically more real. And so therefore, I used logic. My logic was, well, if this is more real, and if I care about reality, then logically, oh my God, I have to join the Hare Krishna movement. So, uh, so anyways. <laughs> Oh my God, my worst fears, you know, I'm joining an organized religion. Anyway, so, but still it was, it was logical. So, you know, what I would say to this devotee, to your husband, and I hope he doesn't, uh, you know, hope he's not unhappy that I said this, is that if you, if we had no logic, you wouldn't stay in the Hare Krishna movement. Not only join, but if you say, okay, I'm going to keep chanting Hare Krishna, that's logic. That is logic. So to say that Lord Chaitanya rejected logic is uh, dramatically untrue. He rejected what he said is, and actually the Mahabharata gives this sort of very modern philosophical foundation, found, uh, language. Because if as Aristotle said, or as Lord Chaitanya said, you need a self-evident foundation, but the word pratishta in Sanskrit means foundation. So epistemic foundationalism is right there in the Shastra. Tarko, logic, ah, uh, not. Ah uh, means not. Tarko, apratishta. Tarka is not an epistemological foundation. That's what they're saying. But if you have a foundation, it's just like, for example, let's say you're building a house and you're going to put in glass windows because you're not incredibly eccentric and uh, didn't read Vastu Shastra. Anyway, so let's say you're building a house and you're going to put in glass windows. Now, you, the windows are not the foundation. You can't build a foundation out of thin sheets of glass. Now this glass will give you a good window. It's not gonna give you a good foundation. So logic is necessary you can't even, otherwise, why would you chant Hare Krishna? Why would you do anything? Why would you, when you get out of bed in the morning, assuming that, you know, you do get out of bed in the morning, when you get out of bed in the morning, you do so because it's logical to get out of bed based on the purposes you have in life, what you value. It is logical to get out of bed. It's logical to take a shower. It's logical to eat something. Everything we do is logic. You can't live, if, if, you, if you were not logical, you would die very soon. So that idea that we don't have logic in Krishna consciousness is, uh, wow. So how can we know that our experience of Krishna is real and not something that our mind is concocting when we depend on our mind and senses to make these experiences? Well, no. Well, it's a good question. It's a good question, but we don't, we use our mind and senses, but for example, right now I am wearing these extremely stylish glasses. I always say my glasses, you know, everything you can see here, it's all for sale. My glasses, my shirt, you know, make me a good offer. I'm just kidding, anyway, sorry, I just, I joke. So, um, so I'm using my glasses as an instrument. Now, I can find out very quickly that these are or are not the right prescription. Like if I buy some glasses and I go to my computer and I can't read anything or I read something and everyone else says, well, no, that's not what it says. 
<laughs> so, you know, there, there's a way to find out that your glasses are not transparent. And there's a way to find out that your mind or intelligence are not transparent. So let's say, for example, I use my GPS as an instrument. I'm a very technologically advanced ISKCON guru and I have a GPS. So let's say I use my GPS and I, and it tells me that I should turn on this street and I do turn on that street. And then it says you'll arrive in five minutes and I, you know, more or less five minutes, but I trust it. So there's a way to find out if your experience of Krishna consciousness is real or not. Is it objective? Because Krishna is presenting to you yoga, which means a process with predicted results. It's scientific. If you do these things, something will happen. You'll get these results. My experience, I've been doing this for, uh, oh my God, almost 51 years. Which of course, I always say it means that I began my bhakti yoga practice two years before I was born. So that's a joke. So anyway, so I've been doing this for, for about 51 years and I'm a satisfied customer. I mean, how can you verify anything? If you're in a building and you see a door, maybe it's not a door, maybe you're like in some born movie or something, you know, maybe it's not really a door. The CIA put some crazy thing in there, it's a trap. So you, you, know, you open it, if it opens and outside if there's the world, then you know it's a real door. So how do you know Krishna consciousness is a real doorway to the absolute truth? Well, open it and look what's on the other side. Just be a rational human being. And so I have over, because my experience of Krishna consciousness is much more real than when I'm not. I mean, I think we all know when we were having a bad day, you know, there's a bad hair day and there's sort of a bad Mahamantra day. <laughs> you know, when we're, when we're having a bad Krishna conscious day, uh, we know it and we're not happy and we're not satisfied and, you know, we're kind of crazy. So I think every mechanism, every process by which we judge illusion and reality, every power that we have as human beings to see what is objective, every power we have tells us that this is real. Krishna consciousness is real. And that's why I'm doing it. So you spoke about epistemology. What about revelation? Yay. Every religion has their holy books with its revelations. Is revelation always just a matter of firm or blind faith where the only rational thinking is that revelation could be possible? Many revelations are, or descriptions could be seen very as very. That's a really good question. That's a really good question. Um, here's what I say. <laughs> Here's what I say, that um, yes, our philosophy is absolutely that we need revelation. It's like if you want, let's say you want to be a doctor. You can't start by yourself. I'm going to reinvent everything. No, you have to accept a huge body of knowledge, which is revealed to you by medical professors. But you can't reinvent the wheel. You put it into practice and see if it works fine or not. I think the Incas, for all their progress, the Incas in Peru actually didn't have the wheel. I think that's another historical oddity. So um, if someone claims that this is revealed knowledge coming from God, then you have a duty and a right to test that revelation to see if it's rational. For example, I'll, I'll give you one claim which 
people realized is irrational. And that is, well, one obvious one is like, the, the religious revelation, so-called, of terrorists. That God revealed to me that I should go kill all these innocent people. Now, terrorists claim that they have a revelation. But if we consider that God is good and all that, then that revelation turns out to be wildly irrational. So reason cannot tell you everything, but if someone claims to have a revelation, you need to test that revelation. Just like someone revealed to me that I could not go back to Godhead unless I were a dhoti. And that was given as a revelation. And after a while I thought, really? And then I thought about it, and then I, you know, I looked into the, our, the Bhagavatam. No, the Bhagavatam doesn't say that. And I looked into all kinds. Anyway, I looked at what Prabhupada really said, and I, re, and I concluded that is not a reasonable claim. Therefore, I don't accept that as a revelation. Another revelation, which huge numbers of people in Europe decided was irrational, and other parts of the world was the claim that Jesus is the only way to God. Something that it's very unlikely Jesus ever said according to historical scholarship, and something which is found only in one of the Gospels, the book of John, which is considered practically by all scholars, even Christian scholars, as the least historically accurate of all the Gospels. I won't go into all that, but it, it, it's a whole academic field. Actually, a lot of the foundational work was done in Germany by German theologians. In any case, uh, there, there's very powerful evidence that uh, that's not really historically what happened. Anyway, apart from that, is it rational? Because if we want a spiritual science, we would have to say, we have to give some behavioral factors. In other words, any science, spiritual or material, has to have some claims that are observable. Like Prabhupada said, for example, that if you chant Hare Krishna, you'll be happy. That is a behavioral claim. It's a claim about a revelation. That Krishna said, you know, chant Hare Krishna, and here is an observable behavioral confirmation of that. That when you chant Hare Krishna, you actually become happy if you do it right. So now, ultimately, if, let's say, a fanatical Christian, there are many Christians, that are, by the way, that aren't fanatical, and they're very nice, intelligent people. But let's say someone is a fanatical Christian and says that this is the only way then uh, in order for that to be accepted as somehow a rational claim, there would have to be some observable evidence for it. And so we could look at people that accept Jesus and let's say people that accept Krishna and we could compare their behavior. Because we know from the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita, we know from all serious scriptures that if someone is actually God conscious, that should produce certain observable changes of behavior. It's everywhere in the New Testament, by the way, that Jesus said, like, for example, he apparently, well, he's, it's claimed that he said to a, uh, a lady that committed adultery that go and sin no more and then you'll be forgiven. In other words, if you, Jesus is saying to this lady, if you really take me seriously, if you really take me seriously, your behavior will change. And it's everywhere in the teachings of Jesus that sincere devotion produces behavioral change, a change of behavior. And so therefore we can take all those behavioral symptoms that Jesus taught, that someone who's really with God, someone that really you know, has their heart in the right place, they will exhibit certain kinds of behavioral transformations. 
And so we can make a list of those. And then we can study people in different traditions. We can study very sincere Christians, very sincere Jews, very sincere Hare Krishnas, even you know, maybe some types of devotional Buddhists, Muslims, Sufis. And we can see, is it a scientific fact that people who accept Jesus exhibit all these behavioral symptoms that Jesus talks about, whereas people in other religions do not? Now, if that was the case, you could make a rational argument that Jesus is the only way. If it's not the case, then the, that argument would fail. And actually, you see there's a, there's a group of devotees, I think they're, I think unfortunately, more numerous than we would like, who misinterpret a Bhagavatam statement to say, and, and by saying this, they basically destroy the possibility of a spiritual science and Krishna consciousness, they say that if someone is a devotee, they automatically have all good qualities. And if someone is not a devotee, they have no good qualities. Now, uh, the good news is the Bhagavatam doesn't really say this. It's actually based on a mistranslation. Uh, what the Bhagavatam actually says is that, yes, yasti bhakti or bhagavati kincha. Anyway, what the, what the Bhagavatam says is that if someone is a pure devotee, if someone is a pure devotee, they will have all the godly qualities and someone who is not devoted to the Lord cannot have all the qualities of a pure devotee. It doesn't say that all devotees have all good qualities. It doesn't say that non-devotees don't have good qualities. It just says they don't have the qualities of pure devotees. I mean, you can, I mean a non-devotee can still be generous, kind, you can be lots, have lots of good qualities, but not at the same level as a pure devotee. That's what the Bhagavatam actually says. So, um, but if you accept this bad idea that devotees automatically have good qualities, then it destroys the spiritual science because instead of studying devotees, Christians, Jews, Sufis, whatever, that's fanaticism. To say a devotee has all good qualities and a non-devotee has no good qualities is fanaticism. Because just because you're a non-devotee, even if you are, even if you are generous and kind and all these things and you have all these good qualities, you really don't have them. Like, what does that mean? And if you're a devotee and you're actually, with all due respect, a real, can't use the word here on public media, but, uh, Anyway, there are words we all know. Let's say someone is, you know, superficially a devotee, but really is not a nice person. There are devotees who are very strict devotees, but they are definitely not nice people. And they offend other people, they insult other people, they're just, they're just not nice people, but they may follow all these rules. And so therefore, if you take it, just being a devotee gives you all good qualities, then you can't have a spiritual science because there's no symptom of it other than just to you know, follow a bunch of external rules and not even be a nice person. So therefore, fanaticism, um, uh, but anyway, I won't speak, but, but so we can, uh, yeah, if we want a spiritual science, we have to take behavior seriously. And therefore, if someone is a fanatical Christian or a fanatical Hare Krishna or a fanatical Muslim or a fanatical Jew or a fanatical anything, 
uh, that's not spiritual science. That's just sort of uh, unfortunate human psychology. And there's a lot of psychology books you can read about it. I, I mean, to understand those people, you really need to read psychology more than theology. So I'll try to go quickly, wrap it up. Another question, you spoke about epistemology. What about, oh, revelation, we did that. Yeah, so, so, that gets, so if someone claims that this is a revelation, we have a right to say, is it rational? Is it reasonable? Does it make sense? Or does it contradict itself? If it contradicts itself, then it's not a real revelation because God doesn't speak nonsense. So you mentioned some of your lectures and writings that there exists not only one single Mahavarta version, but many. That's a, <laughs> that's a fact. Uh, and also Madhvacharya said Mahabharata is corrupted. That's also a fact. Mahaprabhu stated that the Srimad Bhagavatam is the Amala Purana or spotless Purana. There's also no other version available where the Sanskrit is, yeah, the, I mean, even mundane scholars accept the Bhagavatam is not a corrupted text. So yeah, the Bhagavatam is on a very different level in terms of scholarship. So did you ever hear the argument that Srimad Bhagavatam, especially the fifth canto was later on changed or written? One argument is that the different style of Sanskrit in the fifth canto. Can you confirm this? If not, what would be your reply to this claim? These are very good questions. We have a really good group here. Uh, I would say that, um, first of all, the argument, as you probably noticed in the fifth canto, you have a lot of Sanskrit prose. It's not metered like, you know, the shloka is the most common form of Sanskrit composition. It literally means four lines. Each line has eight syllables, like the first verse of the Gita. Dharma kshetre, kuru kshetre, that's eight syllables. Samaveta uh, yuyutsava, uh, eight more syllables. Mamaka pandava chaiva, so when you have four lines, each line has eight syllables, that is technically called a sloka. But because it's the most common form of Sanskrit composition, it comes to mean just a verse in general. Just like they used to call copy machines a Xerox machine. But it really was a particular brand. So sloka is really just a particular brand of verse. But it, so, and then you have longer verses you see in the Bhagavatam. And then you have the, eight, the fifth canto where you get just these prose verses. They're not metered. They're just, just a lot of words together without punctuation. So if you say that no one ever writes a book with different kinds of composition, that's obviously not true. The assumption would be that if you have a book in which some of the verses are this way and that way, therefore it can't have the same author. That's absurd. Even if you look at poetry, some, you, you could compare the Bhagavatam to poetry because it's metered. Uh, then if you look at all the great poets, they use different meters. In fact, the Bhagavatam itself says that uh, that's one, of, and, and, and Vedic culture says one of the symptoms of sophisticated composition is that it has variety of meters. And so to say that because different styles of composition are used, it can't be the same author is a, it's a pretty bad argument. So I, I don't personally take that very seriously. It would take a lot more than that to make the case. Why do you believe that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is God and Jesus Christ not? Well, because I think they're both telling the truth. I guess that's the simple answer. I don't think either of them was, you know, lying or just deluded. They're both telling the truth. And Jesus said, I'm the son of God and God is much greater than me. And Christian, Lord Chaitanya said, I'm Krishna. 
He didn't tell it to everyone. He didn't go around publicly saying, hi, I'm Krishna. Uh, but to his intimate devotees, many times he revealed that he was Krishna and that's in the Chaitanya Charitamrita. Another point is, first of all, I believe it because I, I think they're both telling the truth. And secondly, because Lord Chaitanya acted uh, by the, the amount of knowledge he gave and the level of ecstasy, just what he presented. I mean, Jesus himself said many times, oh my God, look at these, this audience I've got. I mean, he was not thrilled by his audience. We know from, and you know, therefore, you, even in the book of John, you get this thing that I have more to tell you, but you can't understand it. That wasn't flattering. That wasn't a compliment. And of course, the real reason that's, that was put into the book of John is because it was to justify all the new doctrines the church was creating. The, the early Christian community had two authorities, basically the Old and New Testament. Uh, and so they needed a third authority to justify church doctrines, which were not in the Old or New Testament. So they created a third authority called the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, which was supposed to be their Heilige Geist, which was supposed to be, anyway, an authority for church new doctrines from the church. But so if you look at the content of what they taught, if you look at how their followers understood them, the apostles did not think Jesus was God. They did not treat Jesus as God. They thought he was the son of God. So if you look at all these things and, and what they said about themselves, that's why I believe those things. In both cases, we have followers who claim that they are God. What is the difference? The difference is that people that claim Chaitanya is God are taking their leader much more seriously than people that claim that Jesus was God. In fact, when they first introduced the Trinity, the Trinity doctrine at, in the Council of Nicaea, uh, most of the learned bishops of the church, most of the most learned scholars in the church said, this is crazy. And um, the, the whole Christian world divided into two parts. You had, that was the great, what, what became a heresy. Basically, if you were fighting for what you believe is the truth of Christ and you lose politically or militarily, you become a heresy. That's kind of how it worked. And so uh, there are books about it. There's a, there's a scholarly book called When Jesus Became God in the fourth century, the 300s. The whole Christian world was divided. And there were times when the whole Christian world believed that Jesus is not God or not the whole Christian world, but the emperors of Rome, I mean, half the Christian world believed that for a long time. And by various means, by preaching and also by military means, uh, the Trinitarians won. But it was not something that the early followers of Jesus agreed upon. In fact, they, many of them rejected it. And we have no evidence that his own personal apostles who knew him personally claimed that he was just God, seriously God. So, um, whereas the followers of Lord Chaitanya did accept him as Christian. Anyway, there, there, there are many reasons, but that's, that's an academic area called early, early Christianity. Uh, so, Revelation, so we talked about that. Uh, sometimes, I sometimes meet Christians who abandon their belief in God because why are so many children starving to death? Why is there a war? Okay, that's called theodicy in philosophy, if there's a loving God, how do you answer that? Yeah, there's obviously an answer. Uh, the problem, that's called theodicy uh, from the Greek words, meaning the justice of God. Does God uh, enforce justice in the world? In other words, oh, someone unmuted their microphone, so if you can figure out who you are, please mute your microphone, thank you. 
Okay, we should all chip in and get poor Ananda anytime you a new computer. But anyway, just joking. So that's called theodicy. Is God just does because the argument is very simple. If there's a God, if God is all knowing, uh, then uh, He knows how much injustice there is, how much evil there is in the world, how much suffering. If God is all powerful. God can stop all this injustice. Like if you know there's injustice and you have the power to stop it, and if God is all good, if God is all good, he wants to stop the injustice. So if you know that something bad is happening, you have the power to stop it and you want to stop it, you do stop it. So the fact that the evil goes on means there cannot be a God who knows everything, is all powerful, and is all good. Now, that of course has been proven philosophically, even to the satisfaction of atheist philosophers, it's a bad argument. Because that, it, I mean, philosophically, just in terms of academic philosophy, the argument doesn't work. And, oh, this is my doctor telling me the class is going on too long. Okay, so, uh, my dear doctor disciple, I'll stop very soon. <laughs> she's really a great devotee, but she's uh, it's tough love. She's in Israel. Anyway, so, um... <laughs> okay, okay. So I'll just <laughs> finish this up very quickly. Um, if you allow an evil to, to prevent a greater evil, and if you can prevent a greater evil only by allowing that evil, then in fact, you've acted morally. For example, let's say you have a child and you have to bring the child to a doctor and the doctor is going to have a painful procedure and despite everything you can do for the child, there's going to be pain involved. Now, obviously to impose pain upon your child is evil. However, if you are doing that, to save the child's life, and there's, there is not a less painful way to save your child's life, it would be evil not to impose that pain. Or let's say you impose a reasonable amount of pain on your child, emotional or whatever it is, by punishing the child. But it is a reasonable amount of punishment, which would be, you know, psychologists would say, yeah, you have to do it, to prevent your child basically from becoming some anti-social criminal then you in other words it's not that pain or suffering always indicates that the person that caused or allowed it is evil or bad it could be that it's necessary to prevent a greater evil so therefore the real question is when god allows suffering in this world according to the laws of karma as we know is God as a moral agent, agent here philosophically means someone that does something intentionally, is, is God as a moral agent imposing the least amount of suffering possible and necessary in order to bring about a very significant good? Now the Christians are, so to speak, up the creek without a paddle. I mean, the Christians are really, they really have a problem philosophically because they believe we only have one life. So if you take a little baby that's suffering, you know, really suffering, and this is that baby's first life, then clearly 
How will you justify that evil? Now, the best Christian argument, there's, there's a famous philosopher, a Christian philosopher named Alvin Plantiga, who retired now. But uh, he gave an argument which, which academic philosophers, even atheists thought, well, yeah, that's kind of a good argument. Although it's actually not. Amazingly, the atheists gave it to him. When they... Plantiga's argument was that if God did not allow free will, if God did not allow free will, that would be a greater evil. Because if you don't have free will, you're not a person. You're like, you're a machine. You're just sort of a self-aware machine. And, um, and probably you're not even that. But I won't go into that. So anyway, so therefore Plantica said, yeah, okay, a baby's suffering. That's injustice. However, there was some soul in the universe that wanted to cause harm to a baby. And if that soul didn't have the free will to do it, that would be a greater evil. First of all, it's a bad argument for two reasons. Number one, we can imagine a world, namely the real world, in which God gives you many lives. And therefore, if someone desires to do evil, God allows that person to exercise their free will. However, that free will can only be exercised against someone who deserved to have that evil done to them. In other words, karma. Also, Plantica's argument doesn't really work very well because some of the suffering in the world happens to innocent people. So that, for example, let's say a child has very loving parents, but the child is born with a painful disease, a crippling disease. So that disease is not necessary to allow anyone to carry out their evil intention. So, but if you have karma, you see that theodicy, the problem of evil, it's not such a big deal for actually Greco-Roman and Eastern worldviews, which understand there's a law of karma. So if you could show that without interfering with their free will, that let's say someone is a bad person, let's say like Hitler in their next life, so we have little, you know, little, this cute little baby that was Hitler, and so obviously we're dealing with someone that had so much evil inside of them. So you can say, well, God could arrange just that this person maybe broke their arm in a soccer game or something. But so the question is, if someone has very, this is a psychological question. This is a question about, about psychology. If someone has real evil inside of them, what is the minimum amount of suffering that will actually, according to the laws of nature, not the whims of God, but the laws of nature that will bring about a psychological transformation that will save that person from the evil inside of them. So anyway, if, if you go into all the philosophy, uh, there is an answer. If someone says, why is there a war? Because there's a lot of people that deserve to have a war. I mean, it's not nice, but that's just the way it is. So philosophy is works. If someone says, okay, that's logical, but I don't accept it, well, fine, welcome to the great world of irrationality. You know, someone could say that I can't believe that all the souls who are suffering really deserve it, or that it's ultimately for their good, fine, but you did not give a philosophical argument. You just talked about your own personal emotions and good philosophy cannot be defeated by telling us all about your feelings. And so ultimately uh, we need to talk to people who aspire to be rational human beings. And if someone does not aspire 
to be a rational human being and is bothered by this, then maybe, you know, we know, then give them a sweet ball or something. Unless they're on a sugar-free diet, then anyway. So uh, let's see, what else? Um, sorry, it's taking so long, but there's also no other version available where the Sanskrit is different. Yeah, the Bhagavatam, yeah, we agree. The Bhagavatam is, is a good book. So, uh, oh, thank you from Regensburg. Thank you, thank, thank you to Ray, the people in Regensburg. Thank you for listening. Uh, you are so positive, me, Maharaj. I'm a great king, by the way, so uh, why don't you know that I'm a Maharaj? But my kingdom is not manifest at the present time. Anyway, you are so positive. How can we be positive in this changing world? Uh, I would say just good association, you know, hang out with positive people. And uh, we have so much to be thankful for. We have so many incredible blessings. And uh, I feel... I can't express how grateful I am, not because I'm not grateful, but because I'm very grateful. And so, um, yeah, I just, life is wonderful and I'm, I'm so grateful you're all listening. It gives me a chance to, you know, I can talk <laughs> about Krishna, which is very good for me. So, I mean, I'm very grateful that you're all listening. Uh, also in Shastra, Say that material world is full of suffering. I don't want to suffer, but I want to live here. Well, it's kind of bad. It's like, it's like saying, I want to take a walk in the rain, but I don't want to get wet. I mean, then don't take a walk in the rain. So if, as we know, if we, if we, if we are in this material world and here we are, then if we dedicate ourselves to Krishna, we're not really in the material world. It's like an ambassador. You know, sometimes you see cars, they have those ambassador license plates. And so just be an ambassador to this world. Be Krishna's ambassador. Be Prabhupada's ambassador. And then you don't have to suffer even though you're in this world. But if you want to enjoy the material world, then cause and effect. It's like, you know, you, see, you have to decide what you really want in life. So the Ramayana is all slokas, no other meter. Yes, some books have the same meter and some books don't. Bhajana Thakur used the argument that the version of the Bhagavad Purana used back then and today was modified to go better with Christian conquerors. Um, yeah, Bhaktino then later admitted he didn't really mean that. But, but let, let's take that. For example, if someone says, well, the Bhagavatam was written 5,000 years ago, so the Sanskrit and the Bhagavatam should sound like Sanskrit written 5,000 years ago, well, actually, no. Because when Lord Chaitanya was speaking to Devananda Pandit, and this is in the Chaitanya Bhagavad, he said that the Bhagavatam is like the sun. Prabhupada's example is like, for example, right now the sun is up in California. It's almost, you know, it's almost midday, noon, and, uh, but not in Germany. I imagine in Germany, it's not, the sun is not up. And yet the sun will rise in Germany and it will be dark here or in Israel. And so the point here is that the sun appears and disappears. Lord Chaitanya said the Bhagavatam is like that. It appears and disappears. So that means that the Bhagavatam, and so we do not, the fact is we do not have a clear historical record of the Bhagavatam for the last 5,000 years. In fact, there's thousands of years when no one really talks about it. So what does that mean? If we take Lord Chaitanya seriously as a way to prepare his own coming into this world, 
Lord Chaitanya again made the Bhagavat sun rise on earth. The Bhagavatam again manifested on the earth. And so if we have a Bhagavatam that by certain linguistic analysis or even geographic, lingu you know, by different ways of scholarly analysis, it appears to be not 5,000 years old, then that agrees with Lord Chaitanya, who says that the Bhagavatam appears and disappears at different times. It's just like Krishna himself. I mean, Krishna is Adi Purusha, the original person, but technically he was born, not really, but he appeared to be born 5,000 years ago. And so you could say, well, no, Krishna appeared 5,000 years ago, so he's not the original person because there were lots of people who were born 5,010 years ago or there were people born 6,000 years ago, and so they're older than Krishna. In fact, Arjuna himself gave that argument to Krishna. And the Bhagavatam is Krishna. Arjuna himself said that you claim that you spoke this to the Vivaswan. He's a lot older than you. He's like millions of years older than you. And so how could you speak to him? And Krishna said that I, you know, I've taken many births. So if Krishna himself appears at many different times, why not the Bhagavatam? If the Bhagavatam is Krishna, and so the Bhagavatam could have appeared, let's say 2000 years ago, or 1800 years ago, or 2500 years ago, just like Krishna appeared, Lord Chaitanya appeared um, actually uh, 534 years ago. Probably in ISKCON for the next thousand years, we'll say 500 years ago, Lord Chaitanya appeared. We, you actually have to adjust the numbers. But anyway, so Lord Chaitanya appeared actually about um, 534 years ago. So you could say, well, no, that's blasphemy because Lord Chaitanya is eternal. He's God. Yeah, but he appeared 534 years ago. So why couldn't the Bhagavatam? The Bhagavatam's eternal. Why can't it appear? let's say in the last few thousand years in a way that's maybe more relevant to people nowadays because the Bhagavatam's unlimited. So maybe they just, you know, picked a few other, it's like if you're a, what do they call it, disc jockey? I forget what the new word is. You know, you try to play songs people want to dance to. And so maybe Krishna's like the supreme personality of Bhagavat disc jockey. And he just, you know, in every age, he picks certain Bhagavat stories that people want to dance to theologically. And so it um, that's sort of an unusual metaphor, but, I think you get the idea. So why not? I mean, I don't, doesn't damage my faith. I think it's, a, if I was Krishna, of course I'm not, but if I was Krishna, I think it'd be a good idea to give, you know, manifest the Bhagavatam in different ages in, in relevant ways. So uh, if you admit that most people even so, we're almost at the end. So if you thought this is not going to end, have hope have hope that actually it is going to end. If you admit that most people, even so-called intellectuals, do not follow logic, well, sometimes. I mean, intellectuals, some of them are very logical in some ways, but some of their assumptions are totally illogical. In other words, they, 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 they reason from an illogical foundation. For example, if you say that uh, the only things that really exist are physical things, philosophically, that is like ridiculously illogical. That's like, I mean, that is like terrible philosophy. There's, no, there's not one good philosophical reason to believe that. 
But let's say someone does believe that. So, so it is, a, it is an, an absurd assumption. I mean, it's philosophically absurd. It's an absurd assumption. But based on that absurd assumption, you may build everything else very logically. And so people build their logical systems on assumptions, and the assumption may be crazy, which is the case of, of philosophical materialism. So they can be very logical, but based on crazy assumptions sometimes. So even though they make all their arguments logical, how do, because some of their arguments are logical, because logical does not mean true. For example, here is, I'll give you a perfectly logical argument that all horses are trees. All trees fly. Therefore, all horses fly. Now, technically, that is a logical argument. It is a very logical, but it's not true. All the premises are false. But logical doesn't mean true. Logical means the relationship between the premises are logical. For example, if it's the case that all horses are trees, if that were true, and if it were the case that all trees fly, it would then be true that all horses fly. Logical simply means if the premises are true, then the conclusion is true. But it, logic can't tell you the premises are true. For example, you could have a case where all the, the premises and the conclusion are all true, but it's illogical. I could say, for example, that um, uh, normally horses have four legs. Uh, Berlin is the capital of Germany. Therefore, uh, California is west of Nevada. I mean, all those statements are true. Horses normally have four legs. Berlin is the capital of Germany and California is west of Nevada. But the conclusion is completely illogical. So you can have, you can have premises and a conclusion that are all true, but it's totally illogical. You could have premises and a conclusion that are completely untrue, but the conclusion is logical. So therefore, to, to actually be a wise person, you not only need to be logical, you also need to have a, a, a good foundation. So I hope I explained that. So last question, thank you so much, Maharaj. Thank you, it's a pleasure. Gern, hopefully we will meet again soon, either online or in person here in Berlin. Oh, well, thank you very much. That's, uh, yeah, I mean, Germany is a great country and a lot of great devotees there. So. I hope I do go back there and thank you uh, to everyone else who is listening. Let me see, let me just, oh, I have really bad news for you. Just two more questions from Facebook. What are traveling preachers to do with current limitations at a time when people are thirsty? They do this. I mean, we're having a great time. I hope I'm having fun. I hope you're not like really suffering too much. And so then the last point is, um, through devotionals practice and pure intention of heart, souls able to realize Krishna consciousness without initiation. Oh, the good old initiation question. It's a favorite. And the associated mercy of the guru through acting in a Krishna conscious manner in life. Okay, so you're a good devotee. You're really sincere. You were never initiated. Where do you go? What happens? Okay, there's actually a reasonable answer to that. And that is, uh, it depends on why you weren't initiated. It depends on why you weren't, if you weren't initiated because you're kind of a little envious, 
then probably that's a problem. If you weren't initiated because you were really willing to be initiated, you were looking for a guru, just didn't find one, but you had a sincere desire to be initiated, then you know, maybe you get a break. Sadashiva, is that your wife? Let's say hello to her. Hare Krishna. She's shy. She's not coming in the picture. I remember we had a we had a nice walk in Berlin. Anyway, Hare Krishna. Obviously. Hey, Haribo, how are you? The gate is there. Good, good morning. Thank you. Nice to see you again. So yeah, so I, I would say the real reason is why wasn't someone initiated? Let's say, for example, here, here's like another example. Let's say someone was aspiring to a guru and really put their whole heart into it. And they were faithful. And then before they were initiated, the guru did something really crazy uh, or, or abusive or something like that. I mean, we have a case now, fortunately, outside ISKCON of, of sexual abuse coming from, you know, so-called guru. So let's say because of who that, let's say the, the aspiring disciple was so emotionally traumatized by that, that it's just, it's very difficult for them to be initiated. And because as we know, the nervous system, your nervous system is a physical organ. And just like you can, there's trauma of other parts of your body. And so you can actually have almost what you call a physical, but neurological trauma. The nervous system being, it, it's not just emotional, it's also physiological. Because the nervous, the nervous system can be so traumatized that it's just almost physically impossible for you to put yourself in a certain situation again. And it's just like, for example, let's say someone had a knee injury. They were a football player and they injured their knee. And so, you know, the person can't jump. And then the guru comes and says, you're not jumping in the kirtan. You know, I order you to jump in the kirtan when the person has a leg injury. I mean, obviously that's a, you know, it's an instruction given out of ignorance. And the person, even if I love my guru, but I physically can't jump in the kirtan. And so, Someone may actually have great devotion to other Vaishnavas, but neurologically, they just somehow they, they can't do certain things. It's almost like a physical problem. And so, so it, it, and let's say the person was trying to get over their post-traumatic stress disorder, and they were kind of working to get to the point where I can trust again, where I can have that kind of relationship again. And let's say, before they were completely healed, the person died for some reason. And then they were never initiated. So here's a person that died and they weren't initiated. So what happens? Uh, well, I would say if the person was very sincere, Krishna is not gonna punish someone because let's say if they have a broken leg and didn't dance in the kirtan. And so in the same way, if someone was emotionally damaged by some situation and therefore couldn't you know, wanted to trust, wanted to accept a guru, but just they weren't there yet. There's like some other part of your body that hadn't healed yet. I can't imagine Krishna punishing the person for that. So, you know, the good news is Krishna's in our heart. He knows what our real motives are. The bad news is Krishna's in our heart and he knows what our motives are. So, <laughs> so therefore, uh, you know, we, and, but again, there's, and with good news, the good news is Krishna has common sense. I mean, isn't that encouraging that God has common sense? And that, you know, Krishna is not a religious fanatic. Some of his followers, so-called followers are. So because God is not a religious fanatic, 
if someone is fanatical, they're not representing God. It's very simple. So I would say Krishna has common sense. He'll just take a look at you, you know, what, what you did and, you know, he'll be nice. So thank you all very much. Thank you, Sadashiva. I had a great time when I was in Germany. You were one of the highlights of my Europe tour. So um, thank you very much. <laughs> and so and I'm really grateful to all of you. I mean, somehow or other, I can't say I've become humble as my body gets older, but I'm I'm better than I was. So I mean, I really, I really do appreciate that. Um, that you're all listening. I know everyone's busy, so I'm very grateful you all took your time to listen. And uh, I hope we can all meet again this way sometime. Yes, that would be wonderful. Thank you. Okay, Hare Krishna, my best to everyone. Hare Krishna.